Chief Saints, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9. Let's bow our hearts. Um, prior to that, last week we left off on verse 8 of chapter 9, and we'll be beginning in verse 9. Father, as we've been going through this latest portion of Matthew's Gospel, we have been blessed, ministered to, and drawn closer to you. And we see you, Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. That you would do everything, proving that you have that authority, Lord. You have the authority as God to do what you want to do here on earth. And there's nothing, nothing, nature distance, nothing stops you from accomplishing your will. So Father, we're praying right now here in this place that you would accomplish your will here in this room. And Father, there are many, many, Lord, during this season of Christmas that we are praying for others. And Father, distance is not an issue with you. Walls are not an issue. Nothing is an issue with you, Lord. So we're praying, Father, for your authority to go forth and to touch and reach those that we love, Lord. Those that we've been praying for, those that are lost in their trespasses and sins. Those that need to receive the Savior. They need to receive Christ the Lord. And so, Father, would you, through your mercy and through your grace, this season... We're asking you, Lord, because you have all authority. You have all power. You can transform wills, Lord. That's just who you are. We pray that through your spirit, Jesus, you would simply tell them, follow me. And they would, they would leave what they're doing. They would leave the place that they're at. And they would begin to follow you. Yes. Father, it's, it's nothing for you to do that. So draw us to your heart tonight, draw us to an understanding of your power tonight, of your goodness, of your grace, of the hope that we have in you, and the hope that we're telling others that they can have in you. Well, give us ears to hear what your spirit would speak to us, your church. We ask it in Jesus' name, and all the saints of God said, Amen. Amen. Well, that prayer was longer than most introductions, isn't it? Sorry, just kind of got caught up. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, as we've been going through this portion of looking at not just those things where we saw that constitution of the king, but now we're, we're looking at, you know, basically him working these things out actively. You know, we looked at the doctrine, now we're looking at his deeds. We looked at his sayings, now we're seeing the signs. All the things proving that he has authority to declare what he is. 
and and has the authority to forgive has the authority to forgive sin. We saw him initially cleansing the leper, then the centurion's servant. We saw him heal Peter's mother-in-law. And then we saw that little pause where he stilled the sea. And also we learned how he stilled the, the disciples' hearts. Then he cast out the demonic. He forgave the paralytic, which is what we saw last week. And now he comes and he calls Matthew. Now, while he calls Matthew, there's just a simple verse in the calling. And then there's this meeting that takes place and throughout that meeting there's going to be other tax collectors and sinners so whether Matthew has invited friends and he says hey before I leave I want to have all you get together and see where I'm going what's going on in my life I want you to be introduced to hear Jesus and if he tells any of you follow me then you can leave as well um, but we're going to see the introduction to Matthew and then we're going to see how the Lord is questioned by the Pharisees after he's questioned by the Pharisees, we're going to see there's another questioning of the um, disciples of John the Baptist. Now, directly after that, there's going to be the healing of Jairus' daughter. There's going to be the healing of the woman with uh, um, the, that flow of blood. And, and then you're going to see the healing of the blind men, of course, and the healing of the mute men. And so that will conclude the, the, the portion. And then um, directly after that, he's going to be talking about um, how we have to expand this authority because Jesus says, I can't do all this alone. And there has to be this, these, these harvesters to come in because the harvest is so rich. And the amazing thing that Jesus said, the things that I do, you'll be able to do greater. How incredible is that to really believe what scripture declares? But here in verse 9 of Matthew 9, Jesus passed from there. Now, keep in mind, he had just healed that paralytic so much so that we learned that there were so many people around that house that these four guys that carried the paralytic, they couldn't even come to the door. Well, Jesus had, you know, basically had healed all the people there. So he departed the house. When the multitude saw it, they, they began to marvel. And then Jesus now passes from there and he sees a man named Matthew. Matthew is sitting at a tax office. So Matthew's a tax collector, something that we learned when we began this gospel. We kind of looked at this passage a little bit. Matthew, being a Jew, is working for this government that is basically have overthrown Israel. They, they are uh, literally an occupying force in the land of Israel, and they're collecting taxes. Now, if, if you can just, just think of China coming in here and China, say, collecting taxes, we didn't want England collecting taxes, how less another occupying force. And so at this point, he's now, Matthew has joined Rome in the collection of the taxes. Now, the tax collectors would have the authority of the Roman government backing them. When they were in charge of an area, they were said, you need to collect X amount of taxes. So they would use the authority that they had. Many times they would even have Roman soldiers come and assist them in the tax collecting process. Now, if they could get a little bit more, let's just say that, that I own, you know, 25 denarii. And he says, listen, you own, owe 30 denarii. Well, I thought I was 25. And the Roman soldier points a sword. 30 it is. Anything he could collect above and beyond was his to keep. And so they lived very luxuriously. And um, so much so that Zacchaeus, 
he once said, hey, any, anything that I've misdone or done anything unlawful, I will repay fourfold. He said, I will just, I want to give back. I'm, I'm so right with you now. So Matthew is in this tax office. He's there with the, the, the Roman soldiers. They're serving the, the Roman occupiers. And then Jesus comes to him and he says, follow me. Doesn't give him a long sermon. Doesn't give him anything else. Two simple words, follow me. And amazingly, what Matthew writes of himself, so he arose and followed him. That was it. Follow me, so he arose and followed him. I'll tell you what, obedience isn't that hard. We make it hard. We make all, well, what about this? And what about that? And if I do this, what's going to happen? You don't hear any of that. Obedience is just, you say it and I'll do it. And, and you're in charge of all the things that happen around it. You want me to follow you. And there's a work that you know that I don't that you're going to do. And it's been said that here, Matthew, he just leaves everything. And they say with the exception of one thing. Now, you don't see it in the scripture, but you kind of realize what it is when I begin to tell you. There's one thing that he took with him from the office, and that was a pen. And then with that, I don't know if it was that pen or another pen, but the writing skills of being a, a tax officer, he used it to pen this gospel. Like, wow, out of all the things that he could have taken, it's just this one thing, the skill of writing. And I'm going to come and I'm going to bring that to pen this, this life of the person of Jesus Christ. So at that point, we see he simply says, follow me. Matthew follows him. Um, in Luke 9, 23, you know, the Lord says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross daily and come after me. And so Jesus says, follow. And he just arose and followed him. You see this beautiful obedience, not questioning, not hesitating, just obedience when it comes to Matthew. Now, as soon as Matthew follows him, then it begins this. Now it happened. Matthew begins to follow Jesus, and it happened as Jesus sat at a table in the house. We don't know whose house. Some say it was Matthew's house. Some say it was someone else's house. Some say it was really a building. It was probably too large to be a house because you have all of these tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him. I don't know how big your house have to be for a multitude of tax collectors and sinners to come and sit down. But if you want to cram them in, you can do that. So we don't know whether it was Matthew's house or a house or we know it was a building. Scripture says it's a house. I'm not going to argue with the New King James or the King James. It says that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. So you have within this, this area many people sitting down. They're lounging down. You have tax collectors. You have sinners. You have Jesus and his disciples. So I want you to see here this incredible outreach that Jesus is doing. Those who are rejected by society, all the rest of the tax collectors that were despised, working for the Roman occupiers, and the sinners that people despised because they were the sinners. All these now come and are hanging out with Jesus and his disciples. Then, verse 15, and when the Pharisees saw it. I'll tell you what, these Pharisees are everywhere. They're in the fields and they're in the homes. They're, they're, they're like cockroaches, literally. They're just seeing all these things and they don't see it in a sense to encourage or to, to say this is done right. They only do it to find fault. Well, these Pharisees are here. And they said to his disciples, 
I find this interesting. Mark that if you're a note taker. They didn't say it to Jesus. You understand what they're doing? They're going to the disciples. And, and so they're, they're saying, now why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So here they're not going to the Lord and say, why are you? They're going to his disciples. Every time they go to the Lord, the Lord just gives them this incredible word and it just shuts their mouth. Every time that he goes to the disciples, they're like, I don't know. And I love the heart because as they go to his disciples, says, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So they're not going to him. They're going to um, his disciples. And, and if you want an answer to the Pharisees' questions, let me just give you one. In the book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 8, let me just share this with you. It simply declares this, but God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So if you're wondering why is it that Christ is eating with tax collectors and sinners, my answer to you is this, he so loved. God so loved these people. And we see here that the Lord is very comfortable around the sinners. His disciples are comfortable around the sinners. And I'll tell you what, it's a good question that we need to ask ourselves. How comfortable am I around sinners? Do I have to just be around the saints? Is, am I too holy to be around the sinners? Or can I literally go and occupy their spaces and hang out with them? Um, I am around sinners often. Hours and hours and hours through the day. And, and I'll go and I'll talk to them and they will um, say things that are not fit for sailors to say. And then all of a sudden they'll realize, oh wait, and they try to change their language around me. And it's like, go ahead, whatever you need to do. I'm not walking away from you because, you know, you haven't figured out the rest of the English language. Um, but at this point, they, they're sinners, and you love them where they're at. And, and I find it so interesting that here Jesus was just comfortable. He could sit down and he could eat among them. He could, he could fellowship around them. And, and I think it's a good word for us because he wants people to be sent into the harvest and to collect. And we need to go. And I think we need to be just as comfortable around sinners as we are with saints. Because when we're just comfortable around the saints and we're so uncomfortable around the Pharisees um, or the sinners... Who were the ones who were uncomfortable around the sinners? I gave the answer already. It's the Pharisees. They were the ones because, look at my status, look at your status. I'm uncomfortable lowering myself to you. I don't want to be infected by whatever disease you have. Understand, we've all been infected. But we have the cure. We have the blood of Jesus Christ. We have been forgiven. Doesn't mean that we're perfected now, but we have this righteousness and this promise of God. And so you have these Pharisees who are now going to his disciples. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus hears it, now I love what Jesus does. He doesn't talk, they don't talk to Jesus. They talk to his disciples, but Jesus answers for them. Like if someone was talking to my kids, I would answer for my kids. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He doesn't let his disciples answer but Jesus, when he hears that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. 
I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. At this point, when Jesus hears it, he makes a statement. He says, those who are well, those who are not sick, they don't need a doctor. But, but these who are sick, they, they need, they need to have this word. They need to have me. And so he's making this understanding. But I love, out of the whole passage, the thing that I love the most are the, the next four words in verse 13. You have to understand, I love these four words. And he says, but go and learn. Now, who is he saying this to? He's saying it to, verse 11, when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, here's Jesus. Now, you've got to understand how classic this is. This Jesus could be a Marine, I'm telling you, because all these Pharisees were, were picking on the little guys. They were picking on his disciples. Jesus goes to the Pharisees in front of all of these sinners, in front of all of these tax collectors, in front of all of the disciples whom they just humbled and humiliated by saying, why does your teacher do this? Jesus said to the Pharisees in the midst of everybody else, but go and learn. He's telling the Pharisees, you guys are stupid. You guys got to go and learn some stuff. They're asking questions to the disciples. They say, let me give you some answers because you guys got to learn. Think about what is going on in the mind of the Pharisees, how all of these people are hearing that the Pharisees have to go and learn basic truths. you got to love it. I love how the Lord, and I don't know why, it's just my nature. I just love those four words. But go and learn. You guys need to step up. And then what he does is this. Go and learn what this means. If for those of you that don't know, what Jesus does is he quotes from an Old Testament book, Hosea. And in Hosea, and it just so happens that we're going through Hosea um, on Sundays and Wednesdays at the church. And we just have been going through Hosea chapter 6. And we looked at the first two verses on Sunday. But in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, let me just read it to you. Here's Hosea. He says, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Through Hosea, God is speaking. He says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now, I want to give you just a very simple, basic understanding of the difference of mercy and sacrifice. Mercy is something that God does. Sacrifice is something that man does. Understand it. I know it seems basic. I know it seems simple. But if you're a note taker, jot that down. Mercy is something that God does. And that we could be like God and do what God does. Sacrifice is something that man does. Sacrifice is, oh, I've done this. I've done this. Now I earn. And mercy is like, you haven't earned it, but I'm giving it. You know, I'm not giving you what you deserve. And so we see here, he says, I want you to go and learn what this means. You have to understand that God desires mercy. He wants to see out of you beauty. He wants to see out of you loving kindness. He wants to see out of you pity and, and goodwill towards these sinners. That's what he wants to see out of you. And, and so 
What, what is your attitudes towards the afflicted? What is your attitudes towards the miserable? Are you going to join them? Are you going to seek to revive them? Are you going to have mercy towards these people? And it's like, no, but I'm going to give to God other things. He's like, he doesn't want those other things. He wants you to show mercy. He wants you to show his heart. And so I, I, I love what he's doing here because he's like, I just want you to go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So he goes on to say, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So he makes this statement. I want you to learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, there's a passage in, I just wanted to share it with you, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 7, um, where he says the same thing. He says, but if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. He's looking at these people and he says, listen, they aren't guilty before you. They're before God. And if they have the work that God promises them, they are now guiltless in his sight. When God makes us righteous, he literally puts on us the robe of righteousness and he takes away all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of our sin. That's what he does. And in here, these guys are finding guilt with the people that Jesus is with. And Jesus is saying, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you hope. I'm giving you life. It's not the other. So when you recognize, oh my goodness, so what is Jesus here doing? You know, he says, I've not, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Two verses I want you to jot down. The first is found in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. And Romans chapter 3, verse 10 simply declares this, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. When the Lord says, listen, I didn't come to call the righteous. Okay, so, so then where are the righteous? Well, where would he go to find the righteous? I'll, I'll tell you what. Remember back in Genesis chapter 18 when we were looking at Abraham? And there the Lord had met with Abraham. And so amazingly, Abraham begins to have this dialogue with God. I want to read you just two verses from there, three verses. In Genesis chapter 18, beginning in verse 23, Abraham came near after God said, Should we tell Abraham what, I'm, what we're doing? So Abraham comes near and he said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Now I want you to know that what the... Pharisees are seeing in this house as they're seeing the wicked. Now what Jesus is seeing is this, is he's seeing they're all wicked. He's not, they're, the Pharisees, these tax collectors, sinners are the wicked, we're the righteous. And Jesus is like, could I come into this house and find 50 righteous? <laughs> he starts looking around and says, eh, what about five less than 50? Would I destroy them for 45 righteous? But this is what Moses does. Or what Abraham does. Abraham in verse 23 of Genesis 18 says, Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so the righteous should be as the wicked. 
Um, far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. So in verse 26, the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, I shall spare all the place for their sakes. Do you think Jesus could say, well, if I find 50 in this house, I would spare it. If I find 50 in the city, I would spare it. If I find 50 in Israel, I would spare it. If I find 50 in the world, I would spare it. Do you know what? There's none righteous, no, not one. And so we, we look to this, and I love what the Lord said. I didn't come to call the righteous. Why? Well, there are none. <laughs> Why call when there aren't any? He said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And, you know, you take a look inside this room, and every single one of them were sinners. And so he goes to the Pharisees and says, learn what this means. And, and I... I, I if I was the Lord and I just, you know, really put the Pharisees on the spot by saying, go and learn what this means. You know, I would have been looking at them and said, I didn't come to call the righteous. And I would have been looking at tax collectors and, and the sinners. I, I didn't come to call the righteous, but I've come and I would look at all the Pharisees. I come to call the sinners to repentance. That's me. And of course, those are just feuding words. But the Lord isn't like that. The Lord would just simply look up to God and he would say, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. But the bottom line is there's no righteous. There just aren't any righteous. So he's come to call the sinners. And so he leaves it at that. He just That's the end of that conversation that Matthew records. And then there's this next discussion that comes from the disciples of John. Then verse 14, the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for if the patch pulls away from the garment, the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break and the wine is spilled. And the wineskins are ruined, but they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved." So at this point, the dialogue with the Pharisees are over. The dialogue with the disciples of John begin. Now, the disciples of John do the same thing. They make the statement in verse 14, the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we, the disciples of John, and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Good question. Why do we fast? Why do the Pharisees fast often? You know, why do we fast often? Do the Pharisees fast often? But your disciples do not fast. A um, couple things that I want to share with you first. Um, I want to show you the reality of the Pharisees fasting and the disciples of John the Baptist fasting. I want you to see who they are, what they are, and, and why they are. Um, there is a passage here in, in Luke chapter 18, verse 12. I just want to read it to you, where here that Pharisee was praying. Um, the, um, the other tax collector was, was off beating his breast. But the Pharisee made this statement in Luke 12, 18. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. I want you to see that it was common for them to fast a couple times a week. It wasn't like just a one time a month or a once in a while. But it was, I fast twice a week. So they would fast often. 
But here's the thing. Who were the disciples of John? What did they understand? Who were the Pharisees? And what did they understand? Why did they fast? Um, In just a moment, we'll go to Isaiah 58, understand what the fasting was. The fasting was hearing from God. But before we do, I want you to understand an aspect of what the disciples of John would think, what the disciples of John would recognize. To do that, you need to go to the book of Acts, chapter 18. And in Acts chapter 18, I'm going to start reading from verse 24. I'm going to read through the chapter, and then I'm going to start in chapter 19, and I'm going to go all the way down to verse 5. There's a distinction here that I need you to understand when it comes to the disciples of John and why it is that they're asking that question. It declares this in Acts chapter 18, verse 24. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord. Now note this, though he only knew, he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So here you have a man, he's eloquent in the scriptures. And we, we realize something about this man. He, he taught the things of the Lord, but his knowledge was only up until what? It says at the end of verse 25, though he, only, he knew only the baptism of John. This is as far as his knowledge went. It was limited to that point. So when Aquila and Priscilla find him, And what they do in verse 26 is they take him aside and say, come here, son. Let me explain this to you. And so they would take this eloquent man who was mighty in the scriptures. There's something more you're missing. Your your knowledge comes to the baptism of John, but then it stops. Now, verse 27, and when he desired to cross to Achaia, The brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Now, continuing in chapter 19. And it happened, while Apollos sat at Corinth, and Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples. He said to them in verse 2, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what were you baptized? Now notice their answer, verse 3. So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Peter said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. I want you to see that the disciples of John were limited in their knowledge. 
they went as far as realizing that John proclaimed Jesus. John proclaimed Jesus and he did a baptism of repentance. Now, when they are there fasting, I do believe that their heart is still right. I'm not saying their heart is wrong. And we'll see that heart when we get to Isaiah 58. That they're there, they're fasting. They want to hear from God. They want to hear from God. They want to hear from God. However, I want to show you the difference between here, the disciples of John and the Pharisees. Now, why did the Pharisees fast? Well, that answer, of course, is found in Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew 23, verse 3, I'm going to read verses 3 through 5. So Matthew 23, 3 through 5. It makes a statement, therefore, um, whatever, let's back to verse 2, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe. But do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do, for they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on men's soldiers, shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works, now note this in verse 5 of Matthew 23, but all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. And they love, verse 6, the best places at the feast, the best seats in the synagogue. Here's what they did. They do all their things to be seen before men. Now in Matthew 23, verse 23, it declares this. I'm going to read from 23 to 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay the tithe of mint and of anise and cumin, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and indulgence. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautifully outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Now, at this point, we do see there's a difference, I do believe, between the fasting of the disciples of John and the fasting of the Pharisees. The disciples of John, I do believe they kind of had that mindset of Isaiah chapter 58. We've covered this before. We went through the fasting, but I want to share just a couple of verses to, to you here again, just so you can have them under your belt. Isaiah 58, verse 3 the Lord is speaking for the people and they say, well, why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? They are going through these motions so that God looks upon their affliction and their sacrifice and then God is now compelled to hear them. And then he says, in fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure so in other words, what you're doing is you're saying that I'm, I'm finding pleasure because now God owes me for what I've done. And he said, and you exploit all your labors. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day. 
Is it a fast that I have chosen a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast, an acceptable day to the Lord? Is this not the fast that I have chosen? Now notice the fast that God chooses. To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, that you break every yoke. So here he says, this is a bond. The, the reason for the fast is here, to loose the bonds of wickedness, heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, that you break every yoke. That's the reason why Jesus says, hey, there is a certain time to fast and a certain reason to fast, but you have to understand that there is a time and a season. Now, Matthew chapter 17, in verse 14 to 21 there's a point here where, and I want you to just remember what we just read there in Isaiah. It said, and Matthew 17, verse 14, and when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him kneeling down and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's an epileptic, and he suffers severely, and he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So you see here the demonic are seeking to destroy this young man. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation. You, in other words, you're morally corrupt. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon that came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said, Because of your unbelief. For surely I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will be moved, and nothing will be impossible for you. So he said, listen, this kind here, you know, um, in verse 21, however, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. So he talks about the faith and how faith enables you to do all kinds of things which cannot possibly be done. But this demon here, in order to let the re, loose the bonds of wickedness, to let the oppressed go free, Jesus had a life of fasting, um, although his disciples did not. And so here now, back in our text, where the disciples are asking, you know, the disciples of John are asking him in verse 14 of Matthew 9, the disciples of John came and said, why do we and the Pharisees fast often? but your disciples do not fast. Keep in mind, the reason why Isaiah said to fast is what? To hear from God, right? Isn't that the reason for the fast? Well, what is Jesus doing? Where do the disciples have to be to hear from God? No matter where they are, they're hearing from God. I want you to just, just for just a moment, think about this. If you back up to verse 10, it happened as Jesus sat at at a table of the household, that many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And after the Pharisees had made mention to his disciples, notice what happened in verse 12. And I want to tell you what happened in verse 12. They heard from God. They didn't have to fast to hear from God. It's not like I got to fast that I hear from God. They're hearing from God every morning. When Jesus wakes up and says, hey, Matthew, follow me. Guess what Matthew did? He heard from God. He doesn't have to fast to hear from God. And this is what Jesus is trying to tell them. Jesus said, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn 
as long as the bridegroom is with them. Jesus is with them. They're hearing from God daily. They don't have to fast to hear. They can eat in here. They can be with sinners in here. They can be with tax collectors in here. They don't have to fast. Now, Jesus does go on and make this statement, but the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, Jesus here is prophetically alluding to the time where he's going to be taken away. He's going to be taken away. And the reason being is because the very way that Jesus walked with God and had this relationship with God, it threatened the way the Pharisees did religion. They did religion where everything was outward and outward and outward. And so, you know, they, they make it look like, hey, we are whitewashed sepulchers, but on the inside, you're just dead men bones. You cleanse the outside of the cup, but on the inside, it's filthy. It's rottenness. And so the Pharisees had this outward look, but everything that Jesus did was to point out their inside and point out their inside and point out their inside. You've heard it said, don't murder. I'm telling you, if you're angry with your brother, how often are these Pharisees looking at the sinners and saying, what is he doing in here with tax collectors and sinners? And they would go to his disciples and Jesus said, hey guys, you guys need to go and learn. <laughs> you guys need to get back to school. You guys got to learn to do things right. Jesus would fly in the face of how the Pharisees would practice their religion and they need to remove him. They're like, we've got to get rid of this guy. We've got to get rid of they're, they're following him, not us. We're, we're, we're not the, the big guys anymore. They're following him. We've got to get rid of them, him so that they follow us again. And so he makes this statement almost prophetically in verse 15 where he says, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? They're hearing from God every time I speak, they hear from God. Because the words that I say, they're not my own, but all that the Father gives me, that is what I declare. So, but he says, but the days are going to come when the bridegroom will be taken away and then they will fast. There's going to come a time where I won't be here to do the ministry. They will be here. They will loose the bonds of wickedness. They will use us and they will drive out the demons. So, and then of course they're going to fast. Now in verse 16, he says, and no one puts a piece of unstrung cloth on an old garment for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into Onto an old wineskin, or else the wineskin breaks and the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Now, this first one here, most people don't understand today because when you buy jeans, they don't shrink. In fact, you, you buy jeans and they're called relaxed fit, which means they're two sizes bigger than what you're buying. But you're going to say, Look at what size I'm in now. This is great. I'm in this relaxed fit. Jeans used to be where you would have to buy them a, a size and a half larger and than, than what you are and like two inches longer than you were because the material would shrink. Jeans come pre-shrink. They don't shrink anymore. And so um, now what happens is this, if you were to have a hole in your jeans back when they would shrink, you wouldn't get new material and put it on there because if you put new material on that that rip or that tear, all of a sudden that new piece would shrink because the old was already shrunk and then it would make the tear worse. And you're saying, whoever would want to patch a hole in the jeans? In fact, we buy jeans with holes in them and they cost more than jeans without holes in them. 
That's what we do now. And, and so this whole teaching doesn't fit today. But if you understand what was going on there, it would. If you had genes, you would patch them. Um, you would make them go as long as you could. Right now, everything is just disposable. If you have genes, you don't patch them. You throw them out and you go to Costco and you get another pair for $12.99. That's what you do. Here, they didn't have that. So if you had a tear, you would get something that was already pre-washed, pre-washed. You don't get something new and put it on something old. And what Jesus is trying to tell them is, listen here, I didn't come to, re to reform all of these old institutions. He didn't come to reform them. You have to understand that what Jesus came to do, remember in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus makes this statement so clear, so powerful. Do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. I didn't come to reform them. I come to complete them. The end. They're done. What were they? They were all a pointer to Jesus Christ. He came to fulfill all that. Once he came, he did the work. It's no longer the law. The law is simply a taskmaster to drive you to Christ. He came to fulfill that work. And so we see here, and I love what he's saying, I didn't come to reform it. I came to fulfill it. And once I fulfilled it, now I'm the answer. I'm what you seek. Don't seek the law. You seek me. And once you're in me and you've died with me, you're now dead to the law as well. And the law has no hold on you. It has no grip on you. The law, it's sin, you're free from it. And so Jesus makes this statement, no one puts an unstrung cloth on an old garment. In other words, you don't put something that will shrink and make the tear you know, bigger. What you do is this. You have to put this old patch on an old garment. So in other words, you leave the old alone. The old deals with the old. And now verse 17, the new is with the new. He says, nor do they put new wine into new wine, new wine into old wine skins, or else the wine skins break and the wine is spilled and the wine skins are ruined. Now here's something else we don't understand today. We don't do wine skins. Um, what a wine skin was, was basically it was a stomach lining and, and it would be soft and supple and you would put the wine in there. Now as a wine ferments, ferments that soft and supple will, will expand, it will grow. Once it became an old wine skin, you could use it for water, you could use it for certain things, but it becomes hardened. It becomes a harder shell. If you put new wine into an old wine skin that isn't expandable, that isn't soft, what happens is this. The fermentation causes it to burst. So, you know, if you've ever seen like a um, where, you know, you have something that's so shaken up that it explodes, it expands, and it'll blow just anything is it. That's what he's saying is here. The old is with the old. You don't put new patches on old old garments. You don't put new wine into an old wineskin. New is with new, old is with old. What the Pharisees are doing are the old. I'm in the new. I'm bringing the spirit. And this is why here the disciples of John needed to know the way more accurately because they weren't aware that the spirit had come and the spirit is now ministering. This is new wine, new wine skins. And so there's a new work that Jesus is doing that he said, listen, let not your hearts be troubled. 
You believe in God, believe in also me. My Father's house, there's many mansions. I go to prepare a place. Now when he goes, he's going to send the Comforter. He's going to send the Paracletus. He's going to send the Holy Spirit. That where um, Because he, the Holy Spirit can be everywhere. Jesus is singularly present. So he's going to send the Spirit, this new wine. It goes with this new wineskins. So he says, the old is the old, leave the old with the old, don't mix the new to it. The new is the new, don't bring the old into it. And so he's just saying there's old and there's new. I'm the new, the spirit is going to be the new. And so he's letting them know, be careful, you don't, you don't go with the old anymore. I'm bringing something completely new in. It doesn't mean that here, that the, the new wine isn't like the old wine, but it's fresh, it's new. It has a lot of the same principle. Now keep in mind that as Jesus comes on the scene, the scripture tells us what, well, Peter says, well, be holy for I'm holy. Doesn't mean that now you're just, you can live the life of licentiousness. We live a life of sanctification. There's still the understanding that this word is the heart of God. We want to apply it to our lives, but we're not in bondage to it. We're directed by the Holy Spirit in what we do. So it's just a great point that here, the, the Lord brings as far as, you know, you have to understand there is old and there is new. And he wants that new work. It's almost as if, remember in Jeremiah chapter 18 where he goes to the potter's house and as long as that clay is soft, when he finds a flaw in it, he begins to crush it and he remakes it into something new that's pleasing to the potter. But eventually in chapter 19, he warns them to say, listen, remember now when this clay gets old and you find a flaw in it, what happens? You just smash it and you break it into potsherds because it's good for nothing now. You have to remain soft and supple. There has to be this ability for God to work. And so keep in mind that you don't harden yourself to the old. You have to be soft because God's going to bring this new work in here. It's new wines, new wine skins. Now, verse 18, while he had spoke these things to them, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hands on her and she will live. What incredible faith here this ruler has. Now, Jairus is one of the rulers of the synagogues, and if he comes, he says, Just come, my daughter died, but just lay your hand on her and she will live. There's a portion of scripture, and I want you just to, to note it um, so you can at least understand what's happening here. In Luke chapter 8, verse 42, let me share it with you. It declares this. I'm going to back up to verse 41, Luke 8, 41 through 43. And behold, there came a man named Jairus. He was a ruler of the synagogue, and he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come into his house. For he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. But as he went, the multitudes thronged him. Now a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years, who had spent all of her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed, verse 44, came from behind and touched the board of his garment, and immediately her flow of blood stopped. So we see here that there's this young girl who's 12 years of age, a woman who's been afflicted for 12 age. Jairus have 12 years of a blessing with a daughter. This woman now has 12 years of just this cursing with this ailment that she has. And so we see here, there's this ruler now, <coughs> verse 18 of Matthew 9, says, my daughter's just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So this daughter's 12 years old. 
He's had this incredible love for this girl for 12 years, and now she was laying there dead, and she died. Well, Jesus now arises, if he says, just lay your hand on her, and she will live. So he says, come touch her, she's going to live. Well, Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. Suddenly, a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind, touched the hem of his garment, for she said to herself, if only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, be of good cheer, daughter, your faith has made you well. I want to pause here for just a second because there's so much in this. I could take this one portion and give three sermons from it. And um, there's just so much. But I want to just kind of condense it down here for you guys this evening. You guys expand as you pray through it. But it says as he's going, this woman has a flow of blood for 12 years. So 12 years of joy, 12 years of just being, you know, with his flow of blood, being unclean. She comes from behind and she touches the hem of his garment. She touches the borders. Why is that important? Two verses just for you to note. The first is found in Matthew chapter 24. In Matthew 24, the first six verses, Saul, the king, is chasing David once again. And what happens is this. Um, in 1 Samuel chapter 24, it begins this. Now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines. It was told him, take note, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. And so Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all of Israel, went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats, and it came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave. And Saul went in to attend his needs. So Saul had needs, he had to go attend them. So rather than, you know, he went to a wayside is what it was. And this cave was like a wayside. He went to attend to his needs. And as he's there now, what he didn't realize that David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. Now, I'm not going to get into here. These guys are in the back of the cave and they see the, the king up here attending to his needs at the wayside. But what David does is this. The men of David, verse 4, said to um the men of David said to him, This is the day which the Lord has said to you. Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose and, and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now it happened afterwards that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. Remember how the Lord talks about how the Pharisees will enlarge the borders of their garment with the phylacteries? They make very wide phylacteries. The borders of your garment showed authority. And when David came and he cut the corner of Saul's robe, what he's saying, I'm cutting off your authority. So as he cut off that robe, the, the robe the, the itself is a symbol of authority. We understand that same thing in... Um, the, the book of Ruth, chapter 3. Remember when she goes and she lays down with Boaz? I want to read to you two verses, verses 8 and 9. And it happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself, and there was a woman lying at his feet. And she said, Who are you? So she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wings, for you are a close relative. She goes and she lays down, and she, in a sense, is laying at his feet. She's putting the border of the garment over her, saying, I'm now under your authority. So this border of the garment, when you see it in scriptures, 
that talks about authority. And what she does is she touches his authority. She says, this is authority. I understand what that is. So she only touches the border of his garment, just the hem of it. For she said, if only I may touch his garment, I may, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around when he saw her and said, be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. A couple of things I want to make a note. Um, Jairus had come in verse 18 and says, my daughter has just died. Jesus looks at this one woman who had a flow of blood and notice what he calls her there in verse 22. Jesus turned around and when he saw her, he said, be of good cheer, daughter. Something amazing. Remember when we were back in chapter 9 with the paralytic there in verse 2, he says, son, be of good cheer. He's the only person he ever called son. Well, amazingly, now he sees his daughter and he says the same thing. Be a good cheer, daughter. The only person he ever called daughter. So in this chapter, he has one son and one daughter. One is afflicted with sin and he has this um, uh, the palsy. This woman here is afflicted through this. She's considered unclean. And he says now to you, be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. I want you to notice that he doesn't say, be of good cheer, daughter, I have made you well. He doesn't take credit. He says, your faith has made you well. Now, what is the mightiness of her faith? Well, verse 21, she says, if only, (laughs) if only, this is her faith, if only I can do this. She's thinking, if I can do this, I think it's okay. And I find it interesting that her faith isn't super huge, but it's enough to believe. Remember what we read there in in Matthew 17? When we were there in verse 20, Jesus had said, Because of your unbelief, for surely I say, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. This woman, if only, that's faith of a mustard seed. And the impossible is able to happen because she has just a little bit of faith. She doesn't have faith in herself. Hers is if only, but she has faith. If I touch his garment, I will be made well. If I just touch, not him, but even his garment, anything about him. And so at this point, Jesus does not openly profess what he has done. Her her sin and, and her sickness is very private. There's a very private nature of what she's going through. <laughs> Jesus keeps it private. Oh, Christians, learn from this. There are certain things you don't share, certain things you don't say, certain things you just keep between you and that person. Jesus knows. And he doesn't tell the whole crowd, oh, don't worry, your flow of blood is clean. He doesn't do that. He keeps it very private. It's a very private nature. And he keeps it private with her. He says, just be a good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. That's all he had to say. And then the woman was made well from that very hour. Now, when Jesus came to the ruler of the house, he now comes to Jairus' house, um, he saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing. And he said to them, make room for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. Now, at this point, keep in mind that a lot of the wealthy people, what they would do is there would be certain people who would be paid mourners or they would come and they would wail and they would mourn 
for that family hoping to receive income for it. They would show, we're here to show how greed we are. And they would, in, in, in that act of having this public display of mourning, that they would then, you know, either be paid ahead of time or they would hope to receive a payment for that act. And that's what they would do. It's just part of their culture saying, we want the whole world to know how sad it is that you're here. Well, these people who are either the paid ones or wanting to be paid, when Jesus comes and said, hey, make room, she's not dead but sleeping, it tells you they're not here for Jairus. They're not here for the girl. They begin to ridicule Jesus. You know, who are you? This girl's dead already. Well, at this point, then the crowd was put outside. And I think sometimes we need to do that as Christians. When there are people who are just ridiculing and ridiculing and ridiculing, you just need to say, I got to put you away. You know, I'm not here to play your game. You're not here to hear truth. You're not here to even reason logically. You're just here to ridicule. You're just here to mock. And you just put the mockers outside. And that's what he does. So when the, the crowd was put outside... He went in, took her by the hand, and the girl arose, and the report went out into all the land. And so how amazing that here, Jairus said in verse 18, if you only lay your hand on her, what does he do? He just takes her by the hand. He just hand on hand, and he just says, little girl, arise. And, and so at this point, he took her by the hand, the little girl arose, the report went out into all the land. And so as the report goes out, verse 27, then Jesus departed from there. As the report goes out, all of this stuff is happening. Jesus now leaves that area again. And he says, and two men were following him, crying out, saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And so here, they call Jesus the Son of David. This is a messianic title. And I think this is intriguing to know that these two blind men are the first ones to see it. <laughs> they, they, they can't even see anything, but they realize, Jesus, you're the Son of David. I'm going to receive that. And so we come here, we see this incredible miracle that's happening. This ninth miracle as this blind, these two blind men are now healed. So they say, Son of David, have mercy on us using a messianic title. And when he had come to the house, the blind men came to see him. And Jesus said, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said, yes, Lord. Once again, your faith, do you believe? So he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, let it be to you. Now, what did he ask? Remember what he asked in verse 28. Do you believe that I am able to do this? Remember the woman's faith. If only I may touch his garment. If I touch it, but it has to be him. He's the one with the power. He's the one that I have to acknowledge. He's the one that I have to touch. So Jesus says, do you believe that I am able to do this? He said, yes, Lord. So he touched her eyes. According to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were open. And Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows it. But when they had departed, they spread the news about them in all that country. Well, apparently, they couldn't hear either. <laughs> you think about it, they couldn't see, and they were able to hear. Do you believe I'm able to hear you? Yes, Lord. But apparently, when it came to see that no one knows it, they weren't able to hear that. 
And I think there's a difference between hearing and listening because if they heard it, they sure didn't listen. And so you see there's this difference between seeing and listening. And God wants to say, I want to open your eyes, but I need you also to hear what it is, to, to understand who I am and to obey what I'm doing. But when they departed, of course, they, they spread this news in all the country. And so what happens? Well, Jesus has to go again. As they went out, behold, they brought him a man who was mute and demon-possessed. So now, um, as that word goes, Jesus is trying to move away from the throngs and move away from the throngs. He's still going everywhere he can. And we're going to see in just a moment, he's going about to all the cities. But in verse 32, they went out and they brought him a man mute and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke. The multitudes marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the rulers of demons. Now I want you to see here that as the multitudes are hearing what Jesus is doing, He's trying to leave, He's trying to leave. More and more multitudes are thronging. They bring to this man who was mute, demon-possessed. As he cast out the demon, the mute spoke. Does this mean that the demon stopped the man from speaking? Probably. Does it mean that he may have had a problem beforehand? Possibly. We know that here he was mute and demon-possessed. He didn't say that he was just mute because the demon possessed him. He has two issues. We see him casting out the demons, although he does speak. So whether it was the demon causing it or the demon was possessing him, both are, you can pull out of the text in the original language. So I wouldn't you know, dispute over that in either way. But we see here the man speaks to the multitudes marveled, saying it was never like this in Israel. Now the Pharisees come and what they cannot do is this. The Pharisees cannot deny the miracle. They can't say... This didn't happen. They can't say the mute man talked. They can't say the blind guys didn't see. They can't deny the miracle. But what they can do is they can cause doubt about the source of his power. Although they can't say this was this this man wasn't made well, they can say, well, he wasn't made well by God. Jesus is the power of the demons, not the power of God. And so they're seeing the miracle and rather than acknowledging the miracle for what it is, acknowledging the authority for what Jesus is doing. Now keep in mind here, these Pharisees, if they think we're from God, well, why aren't you healing the blind? Why aren't you taking and healing the mute? Why didn't these people say, oh, it wasn't like this in Israel. Like, oh, the Pharisees do this all the time. See, the Pharisees think they're from God, yet the people say it's never been like this. Well, all these Pharisees that claim to be from God are not healing anyone. Jesus, who is claiming to be from God, he's healing everyone. Authority is backing up his. his all of his doctrine is being you know, proven by his deeds. I'm showing I have authority to declare these things. And so... When we're looking at this, we see here that they begin to cast doubt on the source of his power. That's all they can do. And so Jesus here is going on in verse 35 and says, 
And he went about all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. I want you to see here that he looks at these multitudes and as he sees the multitudes, first he goes and he's, he's, he's teaching, he's preaching, he's healing. And of course, Jesus does that kind of thing. He teaches, he gives out doctrine, he preaches, he proclaims the good news, the gospel, and then he heals. He backs everything up. So you see this, this ministry of Jesus Christ. And as he heals anything that comes his way, sickness, disease, he, there's nothing too hard for Jesus Christ. Now, when he sees this multitude... He's moved with compassion. Why? And it says this, for, for because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. These Pharisees that have been around these people, these Pharisees who have been the religious leaders, he sees these Pharisees, you've abandoned these people. Because these people under your leadership, under religious leaders' leadership, these people are weary these people are scattered, and they are like sheep that have no shepherd. And here, these are the leaders who are now watching Jesus do all these works, and they say, it's not of God, it's not of God, it's not of God. Why? It makes them look bad. Because they claim to be of God, and yet they do none of these things. So all they can do is, is seek, but he looks at their leadership, and in the same way as you know, they try to... Um, de- belittle his disciples why does your master eat with tax collectors and sinners and they try to belittle everything he's doing <clears throat> amazingly he goes and he says you guys have no function among these people not that you couldn't you don't these people are weary these people here are scattered you're not shepherding them in you're not bringing them to god and as a matter of fact you look at them and you loathe them the same way as when he saw the Pharisees say, what is your master doing eating with these tax collectors and sinners? They're loathing the people. They're loathing the sheep that they should be tending to. And as far as they only look to themselves. And then he said to the disciples, the harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. There's so much that's out there that God wants to do. And he's looking for what? Well, therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And I think it's important to realize that, you know, there is a harvest that's out there. And, you know, the Jews, what they would want to do is they would just want to stay around Jerusalem. I just want to stay in Israel. I want to stay around Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, when you would go from Jerusalem to Galilee, what many of the Jews would do is they would circumvent, they would go all around Samaria rather than going through it. Why? Because there's Samaritans in there. They didn't want anything to do with them. They wanted to be among themselves. And even the, the apostles, when Jesus said, listen, you're going to be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and then Judea and then the ends of the earth. He said, you, you need to move out. But they isolated themselves in until what? Until persecution came. Then they spread. And I think it's important to realize that here the Lord is saying, there's a harvest that's out there. And I think it's so important that, you know, we, we look to say, where can we minister? Where can we, we, we meet? Now, we could just stay here in Jerusalem. 
and say, okay, let's just stay here. It's nice here. It's, it's okay here. Or we could say, well, let's go to the ends of the earth and let's go, you know, to, to other countries and let's go, well, where can we witness? Where can we share? And, and I'm going to say something that might be controversial and you guys can question me on this and, and even disregard what I'm saying. But I really, have, I've been praying through this. It's just kind of in my heart. Um, what you may not realize is this, is there is a Samaria just to the east of us. And it's a city called Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. And there are a bunch of Samaritans there. They are unclean and they are not nice and they aren't pure by any means. But I'll tell you what, you can always circumvent it. You can do that. Or you can say, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to go to Samaria and I'm going to seek to harvest there in Samaria. I'm going to be a part of you know that, that harvest. And I'll tell you what, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And so um, I'll tell you there, if you're looking for ministry, um, you can look to other countries. You can look to the ends of the earth and I'll tell you what, it's out there. Um, but you can look to Milwaukee and I'll, I'll, I'll guarantee you, I'll guarantee you there's ministry that needs to be done in Milwaukee. Um, if, if you want to know that, just drive into Milwaukee. You'll realize there are sinners on the road. And, and I'll tell you what, it's, it's needed. It's needed. And, and so it, it's, it's a great word for us. And, and, and I'm not chastising anyone here saying that you have to. But I'm saying if you're looking for ministry, look no further. Look no further than Samaria. And don't try to circumvent Samaria. And say, well, let's see, I'll go down to Racine, I'll go to Kenosha, I'll go up to West Bend. As long as we're in the wild countries, we're all right. But I'll, I'll be honest, sometimes you got to go right into the thick of things. And, and there is ministry that's needed. And, and I love what the Lord says, therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. And if, if, if God is not calling you personally to go to Milwaukee to any form of ministry, I would ask you this. Pray that God sends laborers to that city. You don't, you don't have to go. I'm not saying you have to go, but what I'm saying is do with Jesus. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. Pray that God raises up people to be there. And, and you may find out that when you're praying that God raises up people, that he may be saying, I'm raising up you. Um, I can tell because he moved me out of Samaria here. Um, I'm still in Samaria, don't get me wrong, but I was like, who do I send? Who do I send? Who's supposed to come here? And God just kept saying, it's you, it's you. It's like, no, it's not me. It's got to be someone else. But I was praying, send in this. And, and God says, I'm going to use you. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do you a disservice by asking you to pray. And as you pray for our Samaria here, as you pray for Milwaukee, just be warned that God may say, I'm going to send you. When you're praying for the labor, God, send the labor, send the labor. I'm just going to warn you that God may say, you're going to be the laborer. And, and God's going to just put you in touch with certain things and certain ministries where you say, wow, you know, there's a ministry that's here. And, and my, my goal is, is not to come in as a Pharisee to look down on them. But my goal is to come as a Jesus to say, you know, what, I'm going to be very comfortable around you. I'm going to be very comfortable around you because, because it's God who did the work in me because I was no different than you. And, and this is what Matthew shows us is he sees all these other tax collectors. That's me. That's me. And, and I'm with Jesus now. You can all be with Jesus now. So we're no different than them. The only difference between Matthew and the rest was what? He followed Jesus. That was the only difference. He was still the same. 
And, and let that be the message that we share to our family, that we're not any different than you. The only difference that you're seeing is what? As you visit them at Christmas, I'm the same. Matthew was a tax collector. They were tax collectors. They were the same. What was the difference between Matthew and them? Matthew followed Jesus. That's the only difference. I'm following him, and he's my Lord. He's my Savior. As he directs me, I'm doing it to glorify him. He's now my life. Um, let that be our heart as we go into this season. Amen? Amen? Well, Father, we do thank you that you are good and that you are gracious. And we do thank you, Lord, for just this word. And, Lord, there is such a harvest that's out there. Um, Father, I know there's harvests um, just next door to us and in the blocks that we live in and in the areas that we live. There's such a harvest. And, and there's even a greater harvest. No matter where we are, there's a harvest. And we don't always have to just always send people out. Lord, you want to send us. And so we simply pray that we thank you that you've been equipping us through this word. And that, Father, we just want to, don't want to grow fat in, in this word as we eat and eat and eat and eat this word. Um, it's so amazing that here the, everyone was fasting and wondering why the disciples were fasting. Is that they were getting fed all the time. They didn't need to fast. And Father, we're getting fed. I know we're getting fed. I'm getting fed. And I believe that my brothers and sisters are. And, and help us exercise that off. That we just don't become spiritually glutted and, and just fat for the slaughter. That we begin to exercise our faith through simply seeking to minister, Lord, um, the good news to those who are hurting, to those who are are weary to those who are without a shepherd. And help us see the people, not as tax collectors and sinners, but as, as sheep who are weary and tired and lost and scattered and are looking for um, you to lead them, Lord. So let us point them to you. Let us draw them to your heart. So do the work within us, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said, Amen. Amen.